This is the Blueprint Podcast, bringing you the latest in cyber defense and security operations from top blue team leaders. Blueprint is brought to you by the SENSE Institute and is hosted by SENSE Senior Instructor John Hubbard. And now, here's your host, John Hubbard. We may do our best to secure our own custom applications, but that's not necessarily enough. Every organization relies on purchase software from thousands of vendors and hopes that they're putting in the same security work that we are. It doesn't always turn out that way, though, as we know. Our blind or at least required trust of vendor software can lead to some enormous consequences. Some of our most devastating attacks have started with supply chain compromises. Think things like NotPetya in 2017, SolarWinds in 2020, and more. How do we mitigate the risk of having to rely on software created by other companies? That's the question we explore in this episode of Blueprint, all about supply chain security. Stay tuned. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Blueprint Podcast. Today on the show, we have a topic I'm super excited to learn about, uh, something that's somewhat foreign to me, and that always makes for the, the most fun episodes in my mind, cyber supply chain security. And to walk us through that, we've got Tony Turner with us. Uh, Tony, welcome to the Blueprint Podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Can we um, get a little bit of information about your background and kind of your current work and your expertise and and, uh, what you do in the space? Uh, Certainly, John. So uh, I'm a career uh, cyber person. Um, I came up pretty much the same way that a lot of people did in foundational disciplines, IT, dev, uh, other areas like that. But for about the last 20 years, I've been working in cyber um, engineering and architecture. And then really in the last uh, three to five years since I joined Fortress of Person Security focused on supply chain risk. Now, this is not uh, really the world that I came from. Um, I always consider myself more of a generalist, touched a, a lot of different areas, um, especially in the areas of application security and with application firewall. I've done a lot of research and work there in the past. And the really interesting thing when I came to Fortress was I, I didn't really see the, the connectivity between what I've done traditionally and what Fortress as a company does focus on supply chain risk. But um, really over the last few years, as we've seen the advent of a lot of attacks, uh, everything from uh, SolarWinds, a recent log for Shell related issues, um, it's become very, very clear to me, and I think the industry at large, that um, software will eat the world. Um, And all the risks that we, are concerned with ultimately what one of these been really eye-opening for me from when we talk about supply chain risk is really everything is supply chain risk. Um, we're all part of somebody's supply chain somewhere. Um, so the things that are just kind of business as usual doing vulnerability management and application security are really software supply chain issues for somebody else. That's a really good way of framing that. Um... To start out this conversation, I want to go kind of broad. Uh, with everything happening right now, right, uh, in 2022, why do companies need to pay attention to supply chain risk? Like what kind of, um, I mean, obviously we've seen solar winds and things like that. Uh, is that like the main threat we're worried about is like those types of events or is there stuff way beyond that as well? I think it kind of goes back to um, what has changed in how the industry developed software over, you know, the last decade, couple of decades, right? I mean, if you go back 20 years ago, um, there wasn't such prevalence of, you know, resources like uh, GitHub. And we had SourceForge, you know, when we were back when. But 
right? You didn't see as much of this um, trend where, you know, it's a race to get software out the door and we're going to use whatever third-party components we can to accelerate the time to market for software, um, either as a speed um, factor or as a cost factor to, you know, reduce the spend on bringing new, new products to market. And, and really the, the, the side effect that, that that has had, as well as the increasing digital transformation as everything connects to software and data, um, you know, just an increasingly more connected world. Um, and you add it all up and, and you wind up with this ecosystem that is extremely fragile, um, where people largely don't know what's going into the products that they're developing and delivering. And they don't really care for the most part. I think it's, you know, what, what are my core business objectives? Well, it's to get a product in front of my user base and get them to start spending money with us, right? And security and the provenance of these components winds up being kind of a afterthought. You know, people think about it when the government tells them that they need to care about it or a customer's contract requires them to disclose certain bits of information that maybe that they don't even know. Um, you know, it brings this stuff to the forefront. And I think, I think most organizations traditionally have not cared as much about this, except as it relates to compliance contractual drivers, but I think that's changing. Um, you know, when we see like a lot of the, you know, financial and even legal penalties that are being leveraged against executives inside of companies that are responsible for software delivery, I realize that they have a lot more skin in the game than they ever thought that they did before. Um, and, you know, the customers are clamoring for more secure software. You know, look at the impacts from, from solar winds, uh, to solar winds themselves, um, financially, as well as, uh, the impacts on all the downstream, uh, customers that use solar winds. And really, solar winds is a really interesting one for me because, you know, I always kind of thought of this as a traditional, you know, IT infrastructure, IT security related product, but being as much as we work in critical infrastructure, what was really eye-opening for us was how deeply uh, these products are ingrained, even in the OT and ICS uh, environments. And, you know, your credentials are credentials, right? So you know, if you're managing credentialed access to an environment, it really doesn't matter. Like, you have the keys to the kingdom. And once that software is compromised, that's pretty much out of the bag at that point. And um, it, it's really up to your imagination for, you know, how you know, how much risk is actually associated with this compromise. Well, I've got an imagination you have, right? I mean, yeah. sky's, sky's the limit. Yeah, exactly. So I, I'd love to talk about this kind of from two angles, both the like customer of a vendor that might get compromised and the vendor itself that's trying to make sure your own software doesn't get compromised. Uh, let's start from like kind of the customer angle first. If you're someone that buys software like SolarWinds or any of these other things that might get compromised, you know, every company is full of software that could be compromised. Um, where do you even start with that sort of thing? Do you take some kind of prioritized, you know, risk-based approach? I assume you do, I guess. Uh, how do you go about even, you know, considering what do I need to focus my attention on given all these options? Yeah, so I, I'm, a, I'm a really big fan of, uh, Idaho National Labs, for those of you who are familiar with, with the National Labs, um, INL has a methodology to refer to as CCE or Consequence Driven Cyber Informed Engineering, which is really kind of a different approach to looking at how we, um, how we address, 
um, cyber risk and, and really kind of prioritizing the controls that need to be put in place to ensure that we don't have a bad day, right? And a really interesting thing I like about CCE as a prioritization approach is it almost takes cyber off the table from the very beginning, right? It, it, it's in many respects, it's closer to like a business continuity planning, uh, BIA, business impact analysis style of assessment where it starts with the critical functions and says, you know, these are these are these are the these are the consequences that must not happen, right? I mean, you know, forget about systems and assets and technology for a minute. Now let's just focus on cyber as a business risk. Um, what are what are the business risks that must not happen? Um, and once we understand the business risks that must not happen, we can start to do this this mapping. And I kind of oversimplifying the CCE methodology, um, but. Uh, it, essentially, it's it's going from the business functions of the business processes, and then dovetailing into the systems that can impact those negative consequences, and then identifying what are the negative events for those systems that can create those negative consequences, and prioritizing there. I think you can take the same approach with your software, right? Like, why is this piece of software important to me? Now, NIST tried to take an approach here to define critical software. Uh, and I, I forget the exact definition they use, but it essentially it focuses on the functionality of the component. Um, and what is the potential for that component to, to do bad things? Like, does it have administrative functions? Does it put traffic on the wire, right? Like, you know, those kinds of things that are can directly lead into more traditional cyber threat modeling and the things that we think of that can go bad, can, can and do go bad. But the reality is software, you can't predict the criticality of a piece of software because you don't know how the end user is going to use the software. What data are they going to put into the thing? What are they going to connect? What assets are they going to install it on? Um, kind of the, the example that I've used with uh, uh, you know, some of the folks I've talked to, um, you know, teenage kid has a blog on the internet of cute cat photos. And so he creates an image rendering library to render his cute cat pictures on the internet. Well, that's probably, most people would not consider that to be very critical software. It's, you know, cute kitten pictures, whatever. Except now he open sources that library and an OT manufacturer decides that they need to use, that this is a really great graphics rendering library that they need to use to render telemetry data inside an OT system. Is that critical? Yeah, probably. That's probably pretty darn critical. But if you were just looking at that library as a standalone entity within, without the context of the larger system that it was used in, you would not have any understanding of whether it's actually important. Um, and so we really kind of, there is no hard and fast, as much as the industry would like to have a, a set of hard and fast guidelines to say, this is always critical, this is never critical. It's not, it's not that simple. And, and you really, you really have to apply some context to the conversation to determine what's important to you. And you know, right model out your application service, uh, and you know, use that to prioritize. Now, the reality is not everybody has the time to go through this exercise. We we had in the advent of log for shell, we had a very large government agency uh, come to us with a list of millions of CPEs, and they asked us. Now, their question for us was, can you tell us? How many of the products that we use and rely upon in various areas of government are vulnerable to this log4j problem? 
And those are the kind of questions. I mean, when you talk about the software consumer, those are the kind of questions that they uh, that they have because software is kind of a black box to them. They don't really know what's inside. They, you know, they buy something from Oracle or Cisco or Microsoft or whoever. Um, and there's a certain degree of trust, you know, uh, there's a certain degree of implied trust in their software vendor that they're going to, you know, take care of them and they're not going to get bad things into their software. And, you know, that they can, they can, they can trust when they buy software from, from these folks. Um, and why SolarWinds was such an impactful thing, right? Because so many people yes. trusted SolarWinds and would have never thought they would have had, uh, you know, this kind of problem. Um, the reality is most of the solutions out there and most of the research, most of the work is being done around what I call developer-centric solutions where the end software consumer isn't even part of the conversation where it's really more about I'm a software supplier and I need to deliver software. So I'm going to go buy tools that help me create secure software. But even if they are doing that, the end consumer has no visibility in the community. So they don't even know if their software supplier is doing the right things or not. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, it's a very complex problem, no doubt, you know, just even understanding and wrapping your head around where to place, you know, the highest risk versus how to even manage it after the fact, even if you can pin it down. Um, let's rewind a bit to, to where you mentioned kind of context and, and threat modeling. Let's say you go through your business functions and you say like, well, we're manufacturing something, we're doing this, we're doing that, you know, we're, you know, administering IT resources, of course, and we have software that does that. Knowing that it's important is different than knowing that like there's a threat out there that might actually use that vector, right? So let's say we have 10 different critical business systems. How do you threat model out like which one of those might be attacked? Is that like a threat intelligence thing? Is that a the nature of the components in there make them more risky? Um, how do we know what to be most afraid of once we've found those systems? To be frank, I don't, to be frank I don't really care. Um, like, and, and, and here's what I mean by that. Like, it doesn't matter who the actor is if they're going to do a bad thing, right? I, I care about the bad thing. I don't care about who did the bad thing. Um, now, Obviously, this gives me some insights into the TTPs that they're likely to leverage. Like if they have, uh, you know, specific exploits that this particular APT is likely to use against my attack surface. Yeah, that's, that, that is certainly good stuff to know. But, you know, in a crawl, walk, run kind of approach, I think that's, that's more on the run side of the house, right? Like I need to, I need to short my defenses. I need to know where I have exposure. I need to know where there are problems. Before I need to worry too much about, you know, who's the bad guy that's going to knock on my door and, and do the bad thing. Um, you know, I need to, I need to get a good lock on the door before I, before I even worry about who might try to break into my house. Mm -hmm. So let's say, um, you know, someone finds this software. It's, you know, SolarWinds is a perfect example, right? So we can continue talking that one. A company is worried about SolarWinds becoming compromised. What kind of steps can the customer of SolarWinds do to prepare for such a thing like that, you know, to happen in the future, regardless of who it is. We'll be back after a quick break. If you're enjoying this episode, then you're undoubtedly interested in building the strongest security operations team that you can. For those who want to go even deeper, did you know that SANS has not one, but two courses that cover security operations centers as well? For the leaders, managers, and directors out there, my co-author Mark Orlando and I offer 551, Building and Leading Security Operations Centers. 
This course covers building your team, your physical and virtual workspace, getting the right data into your tools, and then focusing on security priorities through everyday execution of important security tasks and building the best SOC team possible. For the technical practitioners out there, my course SEC 450, Blue Team Fundamentals, Security Operations and Analysis, is designed to cover everything you need to jump in being the best SOC analyst that you can be. We cover important data types, SOC tools, security logs, malware, analysis technique, automation, and much, much more. In addition, if you want to prove you can deliver the best on any security team, both courses have an accompanying certification available from GIAC. That's the GSOM for 551 and the GSOC for 450. Check out both courses and free demos available on the SANS website. You can get registered today for an in-person course at one of our many events, or go to On Demand and take either class anywhere at your own pace. Thanks for listening. SolarWinds is simultaneously a really great example in a landmark case at the same time that it is a terrible, terrible example. Uh, and, and, and what I mean by that is it was such a sophisticated attack that a lot of the things that we would recommend as defenses against these kinds of attacks are not terribly effective against SolarWinds specifically, right? Um, for instance, um, I think the industry is coalescing around this concept uh, that software building materials and software transparency will provide the visibility needed to ensure that the software that you are using is is, is good for you, right? Like there's 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 no there's no poison in the ingredients list. It's you know it's okay to, to install and use the software. That's one wouldn't have helped with solar ones, just due to the nature of the way the solar ones attack was carried out, but. Uh, by and large, most of the other issues that we've seen, the supply chain issues, would have been uh, helped by, um, you know, by software building materials. I mean, for instance, you know, the, the log for shell thing that we're all dealing with right now is the perfect example of where SBOM would have provided a huge amount of value if we would just go in and say, hey, I use these million products. Let me go search in the database and see do any of these million products have the offending version of log4j uh, that I need to go dig deeper and see, well, number one, is it, is it running vulnerable log day? And number two, are any of these instances of running software are actually exploitable by, you know, by one of the threat actors that we, we might be concerned with? Um, so, you know, that's, that, that, that's kind of my, my take on it. I may, I may have missed your, your prevailing question. Um, well, I mean, it's, it's important to go both directions, right? Let's let's talk the software bill of materials thing for a second, and we can get back to SolarWinds if there is a good answer for that. Maybe there isn't, right? That's just a company got hacked and they changed their actual product, right? In some respect. Yeah, so, yeah, so SolarWinds really, I mean, the best way to, I mean, I, I, I guess one takeaway when we look at something like SolarWinds is that there is no, there is no silver bullet here, right? Mm -hmm. uh, there is no one thing that we can do that is going to protect us against all these software supply chain attacks. I mean, I, I guess if, if there's one takeaway to, to come away from SolarWinds is just understanding like proper baselining um, and understanding what normal looks like inside your environment and having good monitoring in place so that you can identify those deviations from normal probably would have been more effective at detecting SolarWinds than any amount of software building materials work for that particular thing. But, but many other attacks, like the software transparency is kind of core. Uh, we, we really kind of have to do it all. Um, you know, just like everything else we do in security, it's a layered approach. Yeah. 
So with the software build materials thing, that's a term that has never come up on this podcast. And, you know, I'm sure we have some listeners that will or will not be familiar with that. Uh, the idea being, right, if you're downloading and running something that the, the vendor should tell you what they're wrapping in, in terms of open source projects or any kind of code like that, and you track that in some kind of database. Do I have that roughly correct? Yeah, the, the, the way that I usually explain this is uh, like a box of cereal, right? You go to the grocery store, you buy a box of cereal, and you know, like it has, you know, this much wheat, this much sugar, this much crazy chemicals that you really don't know what those chemicals are. But at least they tell you all the things that are in the box of cereal, right? Uh, and, you, and you, you know, likely do not see, you know, arsenic or hemlock or like any other like scary poisonous things on the ingredients list. Well, you don't get that with software, right? It, it's you know, kind of a black box. You don't you don't know the ingredients that are inside. So, the concept of an S bomb is just to um, identify discreetly uh, everything that goes into the software build. Uh, so you so the end user can make it their own determination whether they have a problem with any any of the components that went into the software build. Are vendors supplying this uh, as like a voluntary thing or are people having to figure this out for themselves? Like, what do we do? Because I know I don't see a whole lot of people yeah. telling you the ingredient list for their software, right? So where, where do we begin making this list? There are a few. So uh, BXWorks um, provides a software building materials in like a PDF format um, that they make available to some of their customers. There's a couple other software vendors. I know OSI Soft has started to do uh, some SBOM work here. Uh, I know a bunch of vendors are doing, are creating software builds and materials internally for their own internal programs. Uh, the really interesting thing is we're all kind of thinking of SBOM as a really good means to help us with vulnerability management, right? That's, that's the number one use case that I think most of us think about. Uh, but banking was doing software building materials a decade ago internally as a, as a cost savings measure for software maintenance purposes, right? Um, companies were doing SBOM for other reasons 10 plus years ago um, for, for software licensing purposes, right? That, that's really kind of where this stuff sprung out of this. Um, the, the SPDX standard was originally designed really to identify license management in open source communities, right? Like it, it's really, if you've ever written a piece of open source software and like pulled in, you know, a bazillion different libraries, just kind of wrap your arms around, you know, can I use this in a commercial product? Do I have to, you know, attribute this? Do I have to, you know, release patches back? Uh, what are the what are the rules required in order to use this piece of third-party open source code in my software project, right? And so SPDX and the, and the licensing management pieces that were very, very helpful. Uh, and helping software developers kind of uh, define all this. Microsoft is committed to producing SPDX SBOMs for all of their software. Um, I thought that I had heard a date somewhere around March, but I, you know, I don't know that it's really going to be going to happen that quickly. Um, I think with the uh, with the advent of uh, President Biden's executive order last year, uh, uh, EO one four zero two eight. Um, which was largely focused, was focused around like um, technology modernization and zero trust and uh, software transparency was, was, was a huge, was a huge push. And the requirement was set forth. Um, the rules are not in, in, the, in the FAR yet, but um, there were a bunch of objectives that were put forth to NIST and NTIA to produce a bunch of guidance documentation, which all those 
Others guidance docs have, have come out now. Um, but really the requirement is going to be that anyone that wants to sell technology to the federal government is going to have to provide a software bill of materials if they want to sell uh, in, into the USG. And I think we all know that the USG is probably one of the, if not the largest supply chain on the planet. Um, so uh, we're already working with most of, most of the vendors that we would care about getting SBOMs from in the first place. So I think the general thought is once, you know, the Microsofts and the Cisco's of the world get used to giving them to uh, US government, then it's really not that big of a stretch to move beyond so that they can also be used for commercial purposes as well. But you're right, there's not many people that are doing this today. Um, and those that are, are not sharing. Um, and so a lot of what we're looking at within this SBOM ecosystem is not just just creating the document isn't terribly helpful. Um, uh, analyzing the document, a little bit more helpful. Now I have some human insights. Because otherwise, an SPOM is just like a JSON or an XML file. It's not terribly, I mean, you can read it, but it's, you know, most humans are not going to have a lot of luck understanding what, what it all means. Um, so the analysis is super important so that we can get some real insights. But the sharing infrastructure and how do we move the data around and how do we do it in a, in a secure way winds up being almost as important, if not more important, um, than having these things. I think the risk that we run into in industry is this winds up being a compliance exercise and people don't ever derive any value from it. And that's the thing that we're really trying to guard against to say, yes, there are compliance drivers here. We will meet those compliance drivers. But every step in this, every step in this chain, we need to be producing value to both the supplier and the end consumer and maybe multiple downstream consumers of that data and you know, start talking about integrators and other folks like that who are both you know, um, suppliers and producers. Gotcha. So is that the kind of thing you do at, like, at work on a day-to-day -day basis? Do you help companies like understand and derive value from this stuff? So yeah. what is it that you're typically doing for them when you do that? Yeah, so, so for us, the, so, so we, we have this concept of an SPOM analysis engine that uh, and each step in the process, we think of them in terms of transactions, right? And it's really easy for us to think of it in terms of this way because we use a, we use a blockchain on the back end of our, of our solutions. Uh, so when a supplier wants to then commit that transaction on the blockchain for, for that SBOM, I need to be able to tell him what it is he's sharing. Like, like maybe, you know, maybe I'm a defense subcontractor and I just want to share this SBOM with the Navy, right? I don't, only if they should get it. But I need to know, is this part of the bid package, right? Like if, if, if I give a bad answer here, I could tank the entire deal. Like I might not, I might not be able to sell this, you know, multi-quadra, billion, million, trillion gizmo for the Navy that I want to sell if I give them a bad SBOM. It can be very impactful. So I need to be able to help um, you know, that defense contractor understand what it is they're sharing before they share it, and then provide them assurances that the sharing of that data is gonna be contained only in those places that they want it to be, right? So it only goes to the Navy, it doesn't go to the Air Force, it doesn't go to a competitor, it doesn't go to you know, the internet, right? Um, and then also provide them assurances that the data hasn't changed, right? That we you know, have good, uh, high integrity, 
uh, copies of that information. Uh, and then once that data then chunks down the Navy, whoever the end consumer is, uh, then they uh, get a similar analysis because they don't know if they're getting either, right? And I, again, we want to move this past the compliance exercise. Now, procurement officer might only care that they got the SBOM. Okay, good, we're done. We check the box, we're done. But security teams are going to want to see, okay, what did they share with us? Is it a problem? Are we going to, are we buying a product that's already full of vulnerabilities, you know, from day one? Um, you know, so so that, that that's all kind of that's all kind of part of that. But we are positioning software solutions that manage this full and then process for our customers. Um, so when, when I say derived value, some of that's delivered by the product, and some of that's delivered by you know consultants that we have on the team. Because not not everything is going to be explainable by just a product, right? Sometimes you just need help um, operationalizing a, a new process, and this is going to be a new thing for a lot of people. Gotcha. That's a that's an interesting take. I never really really even thought about it like that um, in terms of being able to uh, you know be something that derives whether a contract goes through or not. But I mean, it makes makes total sense, right? That's a significant driver, and you know, is the business going to get to move forward, sell a product, you know, get a contract, whatever. Hey, cybersecurity leaders and SOC managers, if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you know about SANS Management 551, Building and Leading Security Operations Centers. It's a course made for anyone looking to build, improve, or be their most effective in leading a security operations team. But what I wanted to say was since the release of Season 2 of Blueprint, we've had some exciting updates that I wanted to let you all know about. I'll start off by saying this. If there's one thing I've been surprised by this year, it's how quickly the new five-day version of 551 has taken off with security ops team leaders around the world. We've seen continued rapid growth and interest in the course, no doubt given to probably the high rate of enormous damaging cyber attacks that have been happening over the last couple years. What you might not have heard is the good news that due to the popularity, GIAC immediately jumped on building a brand new security operations leadership certification to go with the course. So now, if you take Management 551, not only will you get five days of the standard SANS level of intense hands-on training with exercises, perhaps with Mark Orlando or myself as your instructor, but also a unique chance to be one of the first people in the whole world with the GIAC GSOM certification for security operations management. I'll tell you, this class is really, really fun. If you join us online or for one of our live classes, you're going to be taking the class with a peer group of security operations leaders from organizations all over the world and working with them on labs, facilitated discussions, and on our Cyber 42 exercise, which we run at the end of every day of the course. So this is a highly interactive and social course where you learn not just from the instructors, but also build your network of other security leaders who you can discuss your specific problems with and pick up best practices from as well. How cool is that? If you aren't sure if the course is for you, head on over to sans.org MGT551, where you can check out the course syllabus and take a free demo section of the class. Thanks for checking it out and hope to see you online or at a conference in the near future. Now, back to Blueprint. One of the other things I'm interested in, which is, you know, same topic, but not software, the, the hardware side of this. Mm -hmm. uh, what kind of problems are we facing on the hardware side? And that's a little bit out of the scope of this typical podcast, but I'm, I, I think people would be very interested to hear about, you know, are you seeing counterfeits? Like, how do you make sure that doesn't happen? You know, any kind of stories around that you've seen? Um, anything you can say about that? Yeah, uh, the thing that we see more often than not, and you know, th th this may be, you know, this may be somewhat 
disappointing, maybe not, depending on your perspective on things. But what we see more often than not is um, manipulation to bypass um, uh, you know, import restrictions and use of technologies like, for instance, like the National Defense Authorization Act specifies certain banned Chinese suppliers like Huawei and Apple and Hikvision that we're not allowed to use in critical infrastructure and, and, and U.S. government, right? But one thing that we have seen pervasively is that companies that are selling the USG will white label banned components in their products for whatever reasons. Um, uh, one, one example that we have used in the past is there's a um, multimedia product used for video surveillance used by certain uh, U.S. government agencies. I mean, this is this is a product that would have access to some very sensitive information and would be in a very attractive target for our adversaries. And the network transformer uh, in that product uh, manufactured by a company called TRXCOM, um, or so it seems. Uh, what we what we discovered once we got under the hood a little bit and started diving into, that's what we do, we do all hardware teardowns in our lab to, to get at some of this information. Uh, what we discovered was was actually a Huawei. It was a, a Huawei component, it was a network transformer. So it's, it's, it's a, 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 we typically focus on like, uh, you know, networking and compute, um, data storage, uh, those components that have the, uh, you know, what we call smart components that have the capability to um, do something nefarious to the larger product. Like, uh, I don't get too hung up on, hey, you've got a counterfeit resistor in your in your product. Okay, that's, you know, that may be a mean time before failure problem if it was a low quality component, but, you know, adversaries are not going to hack us because, you know, the resistor went back. Um, you know, it, it would be very unlikely, right? Sure. Uh, the reality of hardware compromise, this is one of those things that even though there is a risk, there's definitely real risk. And you do see, you see bad guys um, doing things like hardware implants. We see multiple instances of this. Uh, like I said, it's more, more, more often they're just trying to make some money and, uh, you know, bypass restrictions. But the thing that you always have to remember is in a hardware-borne attack, it's much more challenging to carry it out um, because hardware compatibility and hardware interfaces are nowhere near as flexible as software interfaces are, right? So like if, if I have, I don't know, PLC and there's you know CPU in this programmable logic controller, um, there's probably only a few options that I have for another CPU that I can put in this thing and have it still work right. Um, or, you know, the storage, and there's, only, there's some limitations in what I can do there. And if I'm not compromising the product itself and I'm compromising an upstream component, well, how do I know where that component is going to be tested, right? Like, I'm, you know, I'm back, so let's say I'm back to our CPU. Like, I mean, that's a terrible example, but, but, but let's just say for, for the sake of discussion that, that that's what I'm trying to do as the adversary. I need to know where that CPU is going to be installed. And how many do I need to backdoor? And which ones? Which lots do I need to target? Like, who's going to buy them? Like, there's just so much more complexity in connecting everything up and making sure that that compromise that I did is destined for the product that I actually is is my actually ultimate is my ultimate target. Um, with software, it's almost more kind of a watering hole style um, um, mechanism where it doesn't really matter because everything 
everything runs pretty much, you know, runs off a handful of architectures, but it's, you know, we have a lot more commonality, you know, you take a, a X64 um, bit, you know, Windows system, um, you know, it runs, you know, 75% of the planet, top on the planet or, you know, 60% or whatever, whatever the numbers work out to be. But um, it's really easy for me to, as a bad guy, to get a software compromise in place that's going to then own that Windows 10 box. Um, that's really not that hard to do. Um, and there's so many possibilities, right? And, am I going to compromise the driver stack? Am I going to compromise the OS? Am I going to compromise some other third-party application that you use? Am I going to compromise? I mean, it, there's, there's, there's so many options for me to pick from. And I don't have to be stuck to it. Right, like I can, I can change my approach. Like I can get happy through my attack and realize that something's not working correctly, and I can pivot and I can change my approach. How do you pivot a hardware attack? That, 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 that's that's a little bit more challenging to do. I mean, I don't want to underplay the severity here because it is super important. But I, my own personal opinion is I think we get a little emotionally blown out on some of the hardware attacks ones that being more kind of this you know what i refer to as a hollywood style attack um that you know our emotional response conflicts with the risk management center in our brain um and you know we tend to i think sometimes we tend to focus on the wrong things yeah that, that's kind of where i was hoping to go with that it's like you know and it sounds like you already answered it. Should the average, you know, non-government, non-military kind of group worry about hardware compromise and stuff like that? You know, to me, it, that makes sense, right? It's like, well, if I was an attacker wanting to get into a company, like I just fish them, right? I'm not going to figure out how to implant firmware, right, somewhere or like, the, you know, the super micro thing. Like that's something a lot of people heard about, you know, like scary, sounds like a Hollywood plot, really impressive if someone pulled it off in a useful way, but like that's so much harder than anything else. Right? Yeah, it, 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 it's harder, but at the same time, at the same time, it's going to be much more challenging to detect. Too, right? Yes. So like, it's going to be a lot easier to find software that's behaving badly mm -hmm. uh, than hardware right. that's behaving badly. So yeah. um, it's definitely more difficult, but you could argue that um, there's significant reward for the attacker in executing an attack yeah, certainly. I mean, that's that seems like, you know, like you said, the realm of, uh, you know, governments and militaries where like ultimate persistence, long term kind of staying in the environment is what's paramount. And like that. Yeah. I mean, that's hardware. Right. If you can get it in the hardware, they're not going to find it. All that kind of stuff um, is going to be much better kind of suited for really high value targets. So I guess to, to kind of wrap this up, where do you see these conversations and this kind of thing going in the future? Uh, it sounds like SBOM and, and more of it is what we're going to be seeing. Uh, anything else you want to kind of add? Yeah, yeah. So I, it, it's really interesting. Um, I'm, I, I've, I've long been associated with, with OWASP, an OWASP chapter leader and OWASP project leader. Uh, I'm coming from the AppSec side of the house. It makes sense that I would naturally gravitate to a wasp style projects, right? Um, but there's really two competing SBOM standards out there now. SPDX, which is older, been around for a long time, a Linux Foundation um, project, uh, and then a newer, um, a newer format, uh, Cyclone DX, um, 
driven by uh, Steve Springett and, and his team uh, as part of No Loss Project. And it's much more laser focused on those security use cases than, than SBDX is. So a lot of security people kind of naturally, including us, have naturally gravitated over to Cyclone DX. But the, the thing that I've found that's really interesting that's come out of this is it's almost moved beyond a software bill of materials format. And it, these, are, these are my words, not theirs. I think of it more of as a supply chain descriptor language now, because essentially what they've done is they've said, um, let's, let's create what's called an MBOM, a manufacturing bill of materials. It's like a hardware bill of materials. Uh, and I, I, uh, we actually uh, contributed a lot of the data specifications on the HBOM portion of Cyclone DX. We were very happy to see that come into the standards. And now it's not only SBOMs, it's HBOMs too. Um, but then they also added uh, this concept called a SAS bomb or SAS bomb, which is really about describing services, APIs and services that connect disparate pieces of software together. When you think about the way software is built today, that's, that's very much the way that software is built today, right? Um, so th that that's an interesting new concept that uh, you know is pretty unique um, that I think people are going to start going down, uh, especially as we start getting um, more focused on the cloud security use cases here. Um, and then the other piece uh, uh, they they've added this capability called OBOM, which is like an operational bomb, which is more about configuration data. And my point earlier about context mattering, um, configuration is some of that context that matters, right? So I may have a terrible piece of software that out of the box in the default configuration is okay, but if you check this one box in the configuration, it's a hot mess, right? So being able to combine the SBOM with the configuration details to, um, to actually understand what this looks like, I think is super valuable. Um, the, other, the other area that I, I see really kind of exploding here and may even become as big, if not bigger than SBOM itself, is this whole concept of a VEX document. VEX stands for Vulnerability Exploitability. And really what it comes down to is an SBOM is a static, passive attempt to identify uh, you know, component versions and, and, uh, and from that deriving vulnerabilities that are associated with those components, right? But there's no there's no dynamic interaction here. Anyone that's ever done like, like use a SAS scanner or done static analysis on software knows that they're very prone to false positives, right? I see some things that tell me that there might be a problem here, but we haven't validated anything yet, right? Well, SBOM is no different. And SBOM in some respects may be even worse than that because what you wind up with uh, since most software today is about 80 to 90% third-party open source code, right? And a lot of that open source code is vulnerable. But a lot of times when people use these components, I may pull in a library that is, you know, a thousand lines long, and I only cared about the first 20 lines of code, right? Like a whole bunch of that library may not be used anywhere in my software. And the parts I'm not using could very well be the vulnerable parts, right? So even though I'm using that vulnerable library, it's not exploitable. There's no code flow that will let you land there. Uh, none of those variables are influenceable by users of the software. So do I really have a problem? Well, I have a hygiene problem, but do I really have true security risk in this thing? Well, VEX is designed to kind of do some false positive reduction on all the vulnerabilities 
that are coming out of the SBOM and provide a mechanism where the supplier can then provide an authoritative answer to say, this product is affected or not affected by a specific CVE for a specific component, right? Um, and there's a lot of work that's going into this today. And I think of, I think the fear that a lot of people in the industry have is that SBOM is going to create noise um, and it's going to cause people to go run around chasing their tails on issues that don't exist. Um, it, I mean, that's not the only fear of SBOM. I mean, there's, there's other, there's other detractors that suppliers will try to, to, to inject into the conversation. But for, 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 for the operators, I think that's the number one thing that um, for people that are in the know that understand how this stuff works, to realize that the SBOM itself, by itself, is going to produce a lot of busy work that may not result in actual security value. And so we have to have a mechanism to, to turn that into something that is actionable. And I, the, the way I kind of couch this to my team internally is think of the SBOM as a prioritization mechanism. Right, like instead of having to look at the entirety of the world of software, now I'm only looking at 100 potentially vulnerable components. Um, and I can laser in on desktop. And I, I can start to do things like, maybe I do a very targeted penetration test that only looks at the vulnerabilities that have been identified from the SPOM to determine whether they're exploitable or not. And, and our VEX service at the sense of what we're doing, right? We're saying, um, Based off the SBOM, it says that you have vulnerable Log4j in your product. Okay, great. Let's do a very, very laser-focused, called pen test for, for one of uh, better terms, um, uh, that is really only validating whether that vulnerability is actually present and actually exploitable in your product. Um, you know, and then and then produce a result, and then issue a VEX document that then informs you. Um, and the other interesting that Thing that's come up with that is it doesn't have to, this doesn't have to be a one-way conversation. This can be a two-way conversation with the supplier. There's no reason why the VEX has to come from the supplier. They're, they're, they're the best place to issue the VEX because they know the software, right? Third parties like me can produce VEX documents based off the results of our testing. That's fine too. But uh, if you're an end user of the software and you identify a problem and you want to share that data back with the supplier of that software, there's no reason why VEX can't be used in a bi-directional capability uh, as a vulnerability disclosure, vulnerability reporting uh, mechanism. So, I mean, we think there'll be some more work in, in, in that area as well. And that's something that we are absolutely supporting. Very cool. So, you know, obviously an incredibly complex problem, whole lot of different angles and ways to look at it, mixing configuration and software and managing it through the whole life cycle and all of that. But it sounds like there's some, some good efforts kind of underway and, and existing and continuing to grow. So. All of that's awesome. Uh, definitely a space to watch, <laughs> as I'm sure things will uh, continue to escalate. You know, in, in supply chain attacks and, and that sort of thing, we've seen more, or seen more of them recently. So, won't be surprised if, if it continues to be an issue. Uh, where can we find you and, and more information online? I'll, I'll be certain to get you know links from you after the after the show and put them all in the yeah. show notes. But um, where can we find you? Uh, so, uh, fortressimposec.com uh, is you know our our public website where you can find a lot of our materials. Um, we, we have a couple of uh, white papers that we have put up there on software building materials. And a, uh, a term that we have coined called patch poisoning, which is, you know, essentially um, well, poisoning the patch, right? Um, getting malicious software into a known good software update. Right? 
Um, so done a fair amount of research uh, that you can find on the website there. Uh, it is payable, so not payable, but registerable. So uh, you'll have to provide your, your details um, uh, to gain access to that content. All right. Very cool. Very interesting topic. Uh, thank you for sharing your information with us and uh, looking forward to hear more about this in the future. Uh, thank you for being on the Blueprint Podcast today, Tony. All right. Well, thank you very much. And uh, look forward to talking with you, John.